You've hit play on the Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. Surprisingly, I got a text from Andrew saying, hey, let's do an episode about movies that flopped that we still love and want to champion. And I kind of groaned a little bit because it meant I would have to watch two movies that I may or may not want to see again. I was game for it, and luckily you guys were both game to do this. So we're here today to discuss Conan the Destroyer, my pick, The 13th Warrior from John, Mm -hmm. and Speed Racer, Andrew's pick that really kicked this whole thing off. For some reason, he just had to talk about this movie. (laughs) I almost feel like maybe you were at a bar and you got into an argument with somebody over it. (laughs) And you're like, I'll show him. I'll get on uh, Frank's show and discuss it. (laughs) He'll never hear it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But let's just talk first about the fact that these are movies that we're already conceding critically, commercially, did not fare well. Some fared worse than others. Already we're saying we like these movies that the greater majority did not appreciate. Makes me wonder, and I'm sure our listeners will wonder too, how much can these three fools be trusted? Andrew, let's start with you. How would you say your film tastes compare to the rest of the crowd? The world. I would like to think I'm average in the sense that I am almost willing to watch anything and I can find usually one or two good things about something. I will admit at times I can be a bit of a contrarian, but not with everything. It's not like every popular movie or every Oscar winner that I've ever seen. I thought, oh, well, you know, uh, the Speed Racer was better. It's more, there are certain movies that are considered to be, you know, spectacular that I kind of shrug my shoulders at. That's kind of as far as it goes. How about you, John? I would say I'm more of a rummager. When I find something in a specific genre that I like, I'll rummage through the rest of the genre. I'll find one Korean movie I really like and then just go into a bunch of Korean movies, or I'll find one big budget action movie I really like and then, like, do a bunch of those. I feel like I can definitely agree with the common man (laughs) on movie tastes, but I'm definitely going to have some stuff in my back pocket that no one's going to like. As far as the films each year that end up being critical and commercial darlings, what percentage of those movies would you say you agree with in their uh, praise? Probably very low. I'm going to say 33%. Let's go with one third. When the Oscars were like five best pictures deep, I would say like about three or four, I would think were good. I wouldn't think necessarily maybe that they're the best films I'd seen that year. I generally enjoy what I see when it comes to the critical darlings, but I might not think too, too highly of them like others do. I'm probably at the lower end from you guys. I read the trades, what's been greenlit, what's coming out. And a lot of the times I'm scratching my head or groaning, just thinking, this doesn't need to be made, or this sounds boring or derivative. That being said, I will check out just about anything, but that tolerance will quickly fade once I get into the movie. 
Like you can give me anything and I'll try it, but then my trigger finger is itchy on that remote. Feeling things as the movie progresses going, oh, why am I watching this? I'm not getting anything out of this. And then bam, I hit that stop button. A lot of these movies that are critical darlings, especially during Oscar season, I am paying money to see them in the theaters. And I have never walked out of a movie, mainly because I am my father's son and I paid for it, damn it. And I'm going to sit there. <laughs> John, have you ever walked out of a movie? No, it's the same It's the same deal. It's I paid money for that. I'm not physically leaving. If it's home free, I'm going to turn it off. But I generally do like to wait for these critically acclaimed darlings so I can watch it for free. And rarely am I upset that I waited. We're going to talk about movies that we've decided have been grossly misjudged by popular culture. So let's start with 1984 and Conan the Destroyer, the sequel to Conan the Barbarian that came out in 82 and is much more lauded and made a lot more money at the box office. So we have Conan and uh, a coterie of eccentric characters. And they help a cult awaken a godlike creep. Very simple. Probably simplified because they wanted a younger audience to get at this movie. We went from an R rating in Conan the Barbarian to PG. They were looking for the bucks, and that hurt them. In talking about our movies, I'm going to use the five stages of grief. <laughs> Let's start with the first stage, Denial. I can't believe this movie failed because it has Schwarzenegger when, at the time, there weren't many actors as built as he was, so just going to see a movie like this with him in it, it's like going to a freak show. And I mean that in the best possible way. The first film made about four times its budget, so it seemed like we had a franchise going here. Based on the Robert E. Howard literary property, which had its own built-in fandom. Also, uh, back in the 80s, there weren't a lot of sword and sandal movies that were successful, but you also had Clash of the Titans that made a lot of money back in uh, 81. And again, Conan the Barbarian, 82. So this coming in 84, it seemed like there was a bit of a precedent for success. Uh, I agree with the, with the Arnold assessment. I don't know about the freak show thing. Uh, that's just covering my ass in case he's listening. In case he's one of our two listeners, yeah. <laughs> it's him and some uh, one of Frank's distant relatives. The second stage of grief, which is anger. This is where I'll defend this movie, and later once we get to acceptance, I'll accept some of the really stupid parts of it. Look, for the tone it was going for, it was well acted. I feel like the effects were pretty good. I think the score is fantastic by Basil Polidorus, who also did RoboCop. And it's popcorn fun. You know, it's, it's nothing, uh, nothing offensive about it, except for the fact that it's a sequel to Conan the Barbarian. I'll agree with the special effects, because, like, in the end, where the monster's physically there, they put a big guy in a suit or something like that. He's physically there, so there's nothing you need to do to make sure it looks like he's there. It still looks good. And who was the big guy in the suit? I don't recall. Andre the Giant. Oh, wow. Was that Andre? Yep, uncredited. 
That's cool. Because who was going to be bigger than Arnold? They already had Wilt Chamberlain, so you couldn't cast him twice. Well, why not? (laughs) They could have put him in the suit, save a couple bucks. How about you, Andrew? Was there anything positive as you were watching this? I cannot praise the music of this movie enough. The score is the unsung hero, and I will say the best part of the film. I agree 100%. I didn't look into it, what else he had scored, but as I was even watching this movie, I thought to myself, this sounds like the RoboCop score, which is also a brilliant score. It's crazy that you say that, because holy crap, the music was amazing. (laughs) And I think they knew what they had, because they must have played the Conan theme like six times in this movie. It was never enough. Like, honestly, it was never enough. It was his wrestling entrance music every time he got to a fight. Yeah, the music was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. I don't think I'm exaggerating by saying, if you took that score out, I would like this movie probably 50% less. That's fair. Yeah, it would go down a lot in my book if it wasn't for that music. Now the third stage of grief. Bargaining. How could this movie be successful while still pretty much maintaining what it is? I was thinking long and hard about this. I think firstly if they split it from the Conan series, don't make it part of that because it's so different from the first movie. Maybe give Conan a cameo just to do some marketing and get people interested, but don't, don't make him a character in it. Age up the princess. Olivia Diabo, she's pretty young in this movie. She's in her teens. Probably so kids would find it more appealing having a younger character like that, but she just comes off as kind of awkward and just a little gross in her attraction to Schwarzenegger. Lastly, I would say lose Tracy Walter's character, the thief, who is nothing but comic relief. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) When I started this movie, when you first see them at that altar, I saw him without him ever saying a word, and I thought, I'm going to hate this man. (laughs) (laughs) And I did. Have you seen him in uh, other pictures, Andrew? Not that I can recall. He's Bob the Goon in Batman. <laughs> oh yeah, that's he is Bob the Goon. I'll admit I've only seen the Tim Burton Batman once. Once? Yeah. That's not enough. It's like legally not enough. You legally have to watch that movie like ten times before you're fifteen. I felt like the story structure was weird. They went through the adventure of fighting the wizard, and that was the whole thing. And then there was still movie after that with the giant uh, horn monster played by Andre. It felt like episodes. It didn't feel like a full movie. So I would find a way to make it flow better story-wise. Yeah, I checked the time on it. And when they confront the wizard in his ice castle, it's only halfway through the movie. So bold choice. You've got a climax right in the middle. Next, I'm going to go on to... The fourth stage of grief, which is depression. Oh, what might have been had this film succeeded. 
There was a third Conan movie that they wanted to do in the 80s, possibly to be directed by Guy Hamilton of Goldfinger fame. That might have been pretty good. We'll never know, because it never happened. And because this movie, it's called Conan the Destroyer, what they mean by that is that it destroyed the franchise. (laughs) We didn't get a Conan movie in the 90s. We got that reboot attempt with Jason Momoa, which I didn't see. Did either of you guys check that out? I did. It's not that great. And then even after Arnold left the governorship, he had talked about doing a King Conan movie. And it just never came to fruition. And it was going to apparently ignore Conan the Destroyer and just build off of the original film. It's so fun how these long franchises, when they try to do soft reboots or sequels, they really let their disdain for certain entries be known by just saying, nah, we're ignoring two and three or whatever. We're just going to build off the first movie. So I'm guessing you don't consider Red Sonja as part of the franchise then? I would say it's part of the franchise. As far as the Robert E. Howard material, it takes place in that same literary universe. And it's got Schwarzenegger, who's basically playing Conan, except they didn't have the rights for it. Yeah, legally he's not Conan, but he's totally Conan. And especially the tone of the second movie flows really well into Red Sonja. Finally, the part I think my other participants will appreciate the most is the fifth stage of grief, which is acceptance, where we talk about all the reasons why this movie did not get a lot of love when it came out, and apparently still doesn't. I almost consider not making this my choice because I didn't think it did that badly. And box office-wise, compared to the other two films, it did pretty well. I'm not a big believer in Rotten Tomatoes, but I I looked at the score for this film, and Destroyer doesn't break 40% on either scale. So I was like, okay, this seems like it's worthy to talk about. Guys, tell me what's wrong with this movie. If I don't start with the uh, POV spinning camera scene... I would just be wrong. Like, everyone's wrong if you don't start with that. Just Arnold face and Arnold noises while spinning around the monster. (laughs) Well, and then the whole resolution to that fight, they play it like it's some super smart thing for Arnold to start cracking mirrors. But how quickly do you go, well, that's so stupid for the big bad boss to be bested by cracked mirrors. (laughs) Yeah, bad luck. Bad luck came for him. Well, it's like, I'm going to fight my opponent in a dome of mirrors. Exactly the thing that can defeat me. (laughs) That's bad guy 101. Every bad guy has their own weakness. Like, like, if I sit on this throne, I can easily be killed. Well, I might as well have a seat. Evil in movies is usually just unreasonable, not actually evil. (laughs) Well, in a lot of it, they seem to get by on their gravitas and like, oh my god, you can't beat this foe. He's too powerful. Never mind that Bane has those tubes sticking out of his head and you could just pull one. Batarang, I'll hit that no problem. Uh, what else, John? Keep going. We talked about Bob the Henchman, who I like him, but he doesn't really fit in that movie. Did it uh, strike either of you guys similar to perhaps a Rob Schneider performance? <laughs> <laughs> 
Honestly, <laughs> don't you ever insult Rob Schneider like that again. Hey, Schneider does great work. Uh, the hot chick. Deuce Bigelow's great. There are a few movies where he's brought in just for comedic effect into movies that do not need that extra comedy. Andrew, what did you dislike about this movie? Okay, so yeah, the mirrors, the mirror fight scene was pretty dumb. Having not seen Conan the Barbarian, and I did ask you, Frank, if I should watch that first, and you said no, and I'm kind of glad you told me not to, because I have a feeling if I saw the first one, my opinion of this would be a lot lower. Because I will say at the end of the day, I did kind of like this movie. But I think a lot of it was the music and the aesthetic of the film. I I, I love the aesthetic of the film because it's like those old 1950s epics, you know? And a little bit of that 80s cheese. A lot of cheese. Yes. A lot of it. Oh, God. And her name is Grace Jones. (laughs) (laughs) But she's always kind of ridiculous in the films I've seen her in. Well, I'm going to join in. Yes, everything you guys have mentioned so far. I'd also add this wood to the fire. It kind of bugged me. Conan really doesn't have an arc in this movie at all. He comes off as stupid, not realizing that Bombada is going to betray him. I think pretty much from the beginning, if he was paying attention, he would say, huh, this guy who's guarding the princess, he's going to probably try to screw me over. And he even does, halfway through the movie, in a failed attempt to, I guess, knock down Conan. And Schwarzenegger says, what are you doing? And Bombada says, oh, I thought you were trying to harm the princess. And Conan just says, okay, yeah, I believe you. That makes sense. We've been riding together for a while now. But yeah, you would think I would try to harm her at this very moment. You might as well just wore a sign that said, I'm evil. I will betray you. Well, Conan did give him the squinty eyes to show that he didn't trust him. (laughs) Acting 101. As messy as it is, I still love it. It's in that portion of my film library. I'll pull out maybe once every year or two, and I'll, I'll check it out. I'm really glad, Andrew, that you didn't watch Barbarian first. John, when you compare this to the first movie, does it make you angry? Yeah, a little bit. Like, you brought up the very good point of the character arc in Conan, and the first one, he's, by the end of the film, he's prepared to abandon all his gods to do what he needs, and in this one, he's just on a quest. He's on a D&D quest, looking to get that sweet experience. So that is Conan the Destroyer. Deeply flawed, but fun film, especially if you're into Schwarzenegger movies. Check this one out. It's a really good early film of his that just showed he was on his way to stardom. The movie's not so hot, but he does a serviceable job with what he's got to do. He's game for being tossed around like a (laughs) ragdoll. And POV shots. In that (laughs) loincloth. Thank God that stayed on. I think that has something to do with centrifugal force or something, right? Yeah. (laughs) Moving on from that, we go on to The 13th Warrior from 1999. Oh, yes. So, 13th Warrior is the story of Ibn Fadlan. I know I'm saying that wrong. Or Eben, as the Vikings so like to call him. He gets caught up in a a retelling of Beowulf. 
where he is required to join a band of 12 other warriors, hence the name 13th Warrior, to stop an evil destroying a Viking clan's land. And I looked into it a little bit. I guess Antonio Banderas' main character there is based on a real guy that lived and traveled the world a bit and had sightings of Vikings. I think the character's name in this movie, his first name is Ahmad. Ahmad ibn Fadlan. So where does your denial come into this movie, John? What on paper looked like this thing was going to be a blockbuster? It's a John McTiernan-directed movie. He did Predator, he did Die Hard. He's got his action films in the bag. Rising star Antonio Banderas seemed like a slam dunk. And it's Vikings. It's Vikings fighting cannibals. Where can you go wrong? Let's switch to anger. What just makes you feel indignant when people say they don't like this film? I feel like they're not giving it a chance. The most common complaint, I'll specifically read the review by deceased reviewer Roger Ebert. Rest in peace, sir. It plotted along, lumbers from one expensive set piece to the next without taking time to tell a story that might make us care. Into which I say, I disagree, I cared very much about the story. You're finding something that I had trouble accessing myself. If we're talking about the main character, Ahmed, what is his story in this movie? He's a Muslim who is forced to become a diplomat because he fell in love with the king's wife. And so he's forced out of the land. And that's just the first 30 seconds, but every review you'll read of the movie concentrates on that a lot. What aspect of it? They act like that's the story of the film, when really that's just the reason his character's not in Baghdad. Which, a Spanish man playing a Muslim, I don't know if that's (laughs) on point or (laughs) completely off. Well, Islam stretched across the globe. There are plenty of them in Spain. Yes, I'm not that history buffed as you are. If we get into good aspects of this movie that feed the anger of why it didn't do so well, Andrew, throw it some kudos. Um, oh man, um. Oh, that's bad. (laughs) What a burn. (laughs) I like the Viking characters for sure. I don't remember any of their names, of course, because, you know, they introduced themselves and I just kind of wrote them off. But the king Viking that was leading them was the true hero of the movie. Yeah, he was Beowulf, basically. It looked great. Like, it's definitely... McTiernan has his chops and it does come through the movie. When I was seeing that it's a Michael Crichton, John McTiernan film in the credits, I thought, holy crap. Once again, the music was good also, I think... Jerry Goldsmith is, you know, he's done good music in other cinema. And, it, yeah, it had good, it had good moments. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm, I'm so, like, yeah, like, it, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, let's do take two. This time, mean it, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> just, I will say... I did not think it was bad. What a glowing review. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That makes me feel good. I can't wait to talk about Speed Racer. (laughs) At this point, I figure you guys both hated it. I'm ready for it. 
I'm wearing my boxing helmet. Bring it on. I love you guys. <laughs> Let me help you out a bit, John, and say I liked the level of blood in this film. Not that I'm a gore hound, but for this particular story in this time with the swords, the beheadings were awesome. The gouts of blood just really fit into this world. And I thought the production design was serviceable. There was a lot of reshoots. One of the things that caused it to be a flop was the initial test screening. People hated it. Tiernan eventually left and Michael Crichton came in and like finished the movie because it's his book. By the time it came out, they'd spent, I think, $160 million on it when they only wanted to spend like $80 million. And so they just never made their money back. So this was kind of the solo, a Star Wars film of its day? It was pieced together by a studio from two different directors. Let's go into bargaining, John. While maintaining what this movie ultimately is, are there little things you could tweak about it that you think would have helped it? Let's start with the trailer. I don't know if you guys watched the trailer, but it was such a 90s trailer. It had that mall techno that they would play in stores they wanted you to come in and buy incense from for some reason and that trailer also only concentrated on the the reason uh he got kicked out of baghdad the reason antonio Banderas's character left baghdad which was not again part of the movie so i feel like the marketing itself kind of was the beginning of its problems so i would definitely fix that but from there i don't know I hated making movies with film school, so I don't know what I would change. I'm sure I'm about to hear some great suggestions. Yes, we'll get there in a couple steps. Depression, John. What about the failure of this movie hurt things after it? I feel like it did hurt Antonio Medeiros' career here in America. What was his next successful film? I think the next big one for him that I can remember is his most iconic role as Puss in Boots. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's unfortunate for him because that's, what, 2004? Because I don't remember when... Because it was like, they did Zorro and then Mask of Zorro was the sequel, right? Yeah. I don't remember when the second one came out. Mask of Zorro was 98. Okay. Let's see, Play It to the Bone, I really liked, but that wasn't a success. Uh, Spy Kids, but that was just... Well, that did well, didn't it? It did, but is that really him getting back? I didn't see it. What part did he have in it? He was the dad. Okay, sounds like he was in it for a minute. He was a side character. Yeah, Puss in Boots was his next big movie in 2004. That definitely hurt his career. But Puss in Boots, dude, like him as Puss in Boots was fantastic. Shrek 2 is fantastic. We should do a Shrek 2 episode. <laughs> okay, okay. Now the juiciest part of all this, the acceptance. Kick the corpse a bit. What was wrong with this movie? There was a lot to get through just to get to Vikings fighting cannibals. There was so much in the beginning. Everything had to be said twice for, I guess, historical accuracy, because everything was in Nor Norish. I don't know the name of the language, Norwegian. And then it had to be reset again in English. And then there was a the whole section of getting there. It, the beginning was clunky. It's a hard first act to get through when the meat of your story is Vikings killing cannibals. 
Okay, first. Oh. But you do. <laughs> okay. I was disappointed with the cannibals as villains. They're trying to make it out like they're these demons and that it's something out of this world that's ravaging this village. And I don't think the movie necessarily tries to get you to believe that it is something demonic or out of this world. They just want you to see why the villagers think that way because heads are missing and people are being eaten and everything. I felt like Antonio's character, he served a purpose, but it was largely the Beowulf character who was the hero of the film. I mean, he kills the big bad after being poisoned. He still wins and just sits in his throne and is like, all right, well, time to die. <laughs> you know, this <laughs> badass Viking moment. It was the coolest part of the whole movie. The fight scenes were cool. They tried to make you think that the villains were mystical when they just weren't. And I almost feel like it would have been more interesting had they had some type of magic or something. Or, I don't know. Movies are magic, Andrew. Yeah, movie making is magic. Not this one. (laughs) (laughs) No, not this one. See, I I felt the exact opposite. I liked it because it turned out to be just cannibals in a cave, dressed as bears. The mixing of religions made it so that they were both wrong. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's another thing that I kind of... I don't feel like Ahmed really grew too much as a character. He kind of was the exact same as he got there. All he did was learn Norwegian. I mean, sure, he killed a guy... And then when he found out it's a man, then he just became a killing machine. Just out of nowhere. I love that line, though, when he, when he goes, it's a man. It's a man. He has the realization, and then he goes on the murder spree, and then his friend's like, don't worry, little brother, there are more. <laughs> he was inept up until that point, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, time to decapitate some cannibals, and he certainly did. I felt like it really missed the mark. Antonio almost didn't need to be there. I agree that the slow pacing in the first half or so is difficult to get through. And I had a terrible pang of PTSD. The only other time I've watched this movie was on VHS. So I was a kid at the time. I remember thinking, oh my God, this is so slow and boring. (laughs) I don't think I actually finished it. I think I turned it off. So I was a little brat. (laughs) Oh, you missed the best part. I did. But for a kid, it's a bigger percentage of your life every minute that goes by when you're young versus when you're older. Oh. You know, the half hour, 40 minutes it would take to get to the good stuff already accounted for like a 1% of my entire life to that point. (laughs) (laughs) When you put it that way, yeah, that sounds like it's a terrible movie. And then Antonio, I'm a fan of Tony's, and I wasn't pleased considering his character is the namesake of the film. As Andrew pointed out, he doesn't have much to do in this, as evidenced by the fact that he has his love interest among the Vikings. You think there might be something brewing, or at least something we'll explore for a bit? They say kind of goodbye when he goes off to do some big battle, but by the very end of the movie... She just disappears, and there's no acknowledgement of the fact that they had their little love affair. Nail and bail, my friend. Yep, she ghosted him. She's like, I'm out. He was supposed to die in that battle. He came back. I'm going to hide. 
And you look at his charisma in something like uh, Robert Rodriguez's Desperado. He was likable in this movie, but I just didn't get that level of awesomeness that I'm accustomed to by that sexy guy, Antonio Banderas. He's the audience in this film. He's there to be the lens in which you can watch the badass Vikings. He's pretty timid for a lot of the film, isn't he? That was probably one of the big turnoffs initially, was that he wasn't the action star. I think it's interesting that you say he's the lens for the audience, but I think that it's like, you can just have the camera be the lens for the audience. I mean, like he, that's essentially how it was. He ultimately, to me, was pointless in his own film. It's called The Thirteenth Warrior, but he doesn't really do anything. I thought he was going to save the day, and he just, there. And, you know, at the end of the movie, the Beowulf character is like, oh, you know, um, a man whose life is drawn is a very lucky man indeed. And I know that at the end of the movie, he's writing the king's dory. But at the same time, he kind of ends it on his own self-reflective thoughts. Like, I was a lucky man to be there. <laughs> you know, like he's, he's writing his own story. <laughs> <laughs> that guy was awesome. I'm great. <laughs> it's a fair assessment. I can't give out points because it's not a points-based system. But if I could. I'd still deny you because you didn't like the movie. <laughs> well, that's the point of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that was a bit of catharsis for you, John. Now we're getting to a real point of contention, which is our final film for the episode, and that is Speed Racer 2008. Andrew, talk about this hidden gem. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. So you said you were prepared, so I figured I'd give you both barrels. <laughs> Get those gloves up. Get those gloves up, kid. It's coming. I feel like I've already been shot from a distance. I never said a chance. <laughs> okay. Speed Racer is a race car driver who's trying to protect his family from the evil companies that fix the World Racing League. Did you see this movie when it first came out? Yes, I saw this in theaters. And was it because of the Wachowskis, or was the subject matter what drew you in? I watched it because, honestly, I wanted to see it. It looked fun to me. John, did you see Speed Racer when it came out? <laughs> nope. Uh, were you at the Academy of Art by then? Yeah, I was. So I think someone found a copy of it somewhere, and we watched it in, I want to say, one of the dorms. That seems like a movie that's just perfect for being picked apart by a bunch of film student geeks. <laughs> it's funny you should say that. <laughs> well, that's pretty much the dream we're living right now, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> okay, Andrew. The first stage, which I think is you to a T, denial. What about this movie is so great that should have gotten it more accolades? First of all, it is the Wachowskis. I don't want to say at the height of their power, V for Vendetta was like 2005, 2006. So they were coming off of the heels of that one, which was another, you know, darling for them. And it looked different, like something we kind of hadn't seen, if not before, at least I'll say for a long time. Did you have any prior uh, history with Speed Racer? Not really. I mean, I, I watched a little bit of it maybe on Cartoon Network when it was on. I would watch it waiting for another cartoon to come on. In the second stage of grief, what about this movie? Are people just not understanding that makes it a hidden gem? Specifically with the Wachowskis, 
you had The Matrix, which was this kind of thinking man's action movie in a way. I had a friend who was taking a film class at Long Beach City College, and that was one of the things that the philosophy professor would show. Like, The Matrix was curriculum for them. I just think that people went into this film expecting another deep Wachowski flick and got Speed Racer, which is just supposed to be, I think, a fun family action flick. There's a certain aspect of it where I found it very gaudy. I kept my eyes on it maybe longer than I should have because it's got that beautiful car crash quality to it where you just got to see it happening and exploding in front of your face. But let me lavish it with a couple of points of praise. I was happy to see Christina Ricci. She's always a win, whatever movie she's in. I felt that the bold color palette was very refreshing, especially nowadays with that Zack Snyder desaturated, gloomy, disgusting look. It was nice to see this really take advantage of a color palette the same way uh, French movies like Amelie do. John, say some nice things about this turd. (laughs) It was a shiny turd, that's for sure. The Desert Race, that just felt like an episode of the show. That was probably the best part of the whole movie. And the rest of it was... I'll talk about that later. Bargaining. Again, keeping it somewhat what it is. Andrew, are there any tweaks you could make to make this a bit more palatable? I would have cut a lot of the spritel stuff. Because he is annoying. I would have made this movie shorter. Because I think especially for a family film, it's about 2 hours and 15 minutes. And, I mean, I hate to say this, but I think if they made it look more like almost every other movie, it probably would not have gotten as much hate as it did. Agreed. Depression. (laughs) What about this movie tanking hurt the people in it and around it? Well, they never quite looked at the Wachowskis the same way again. And yet they still made a couple of big-budget movies, Cloud Atlas and uh, Jupiter Ascending. I forgot all about Jupiter Ascending. Just like everybody else did. Yeah. Yeah, everyone forgot about that. (laughs) It really hurt their career. You don't see Emil Hirsch anymore, really. Even though he was in films after this, he never was quite able to get a lead like this after that I can remember. Would you say that this was an Emil Hirsch vehicle? Hey. (laughs) (sighs) I don't know much about Emile Hirsch's career. Was he, like, building steam going into this movie, or was this his chance to make it? I think around the same time this movie came out, there was this flick called Into the Wild, which was this indie movie that he was in that was getting some decent praise, specifically for him. Yeah, that must have been around the same time. I remember seeing that in college. Wow, putting that movie side by side with this one, (laughs) totally two different ways to go. Uh, Emile Hirsch really showing his range. (laughs) So Into the Wild came out a year before. I think he was picking up steam. He was getting leading man status, and then this happened. And then Speed Racer put the brakes on that. Yeah. (laughs) Puns. All the puns. (laughs) Acceptance, Andrew. This is the part I think John and I have been waiting for. Oh, yes. But let's lead with you. You mentioned a couple of them, but is there anything else that you agree with people that say are the problems? I do agree with the people who say that the film has its issues. The scenes with Speed and Trixie 
especially when it's just the two of them being lovey-dovey. It's very cringy. It's hard to watch. And then on top of it, there's a... I think they... Let it out. Just let it out. <laughs> they, they could have explained things a little bit better. Like when they're going into how the racing scene is rigged, the guy's kind of speaking quickly and he's throwing a lot of information out at you really fast. There's just a lot of exposition thrown at you very quickly. And if you stop paying attention for a second, you'll miss something. They could have spread that out a little bit more or not made it as multi-layered as they did. For a uh, two-hour-plus movie, you'd think that would allow them to slow down a bit for the exposition. I think they wanted to get to the nice, long racing sequences. They rushed all of that story. It was a little much. Especially when he's talking about how everything's rigged. It's just, oh, well, this company had to do this, and this company did that, and then they bought this out because the share price went up. You need to slow down because not everyone knows finances that well. Like I don't. Take it down a notch. Kind of like how The Big Short did it, where it's all about the financial crash, but they slowed it down enough to where, as a layman, you can understand why things are happening the way they were. John, what were your issues? Come at me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Oh boy. First of all, I'm going to refer to this movie as Diarrhea Christmas Lights. (laughs) I think a really good term I've heard on the internet before. I think it starts with the source material, which is pretty thin. Don't get me started on that Racer X plot. Like, you changed your face, so why did you (laughs) need to hide it? (laughs) A whole huge aspect was pointless. Like, your whole subplot of the movie was now pointless, because it's like, oh, he had plastic surgery, so hiding his face was meaningless. The acting wasn't that great. The fast, super fast exposition is definitely from the show, because... They just needed to make the mouths look right when they were dubbing, so they had to talk at the speed of Japanese speakers. Uh, I don't know. Frank, what do you got? Well, I had never seen this movie before, but I was curious about it, so this felt like a good opportunity to dip my toe into the world of Speed Racer. First thing I thought of was that they made this whole movie using the uh, basic plugins in After Effects. Characters are just sliding across the frame, and everything just looks like a collage that was put together in the background. I mean, just none of it, none of it fits. Everything's clashing, and even when I see stuff that I think are interesting visually, they don't hold on it very long. It's just like, hey, how you doing? Bye, see you later. Most of the movie, the 40 minutes or so that I could get through, I was constantly thinking, what what are they trying to do with the movie? What is this thing? At times I thought it was meant to be farcical adult comedy. Everything on screen is a bit of satire and you have to look deeper into it to really see what's happening. And then there are parts with the monkey that I said, well, I think this is geared toward children. This is ridiculous. You're not supposed to get into this because it's just so crazy and fast paced all the time. And Andrew, my brain hurt. Wait, you turned this off after 40 minutes? (laughs) So you didn't even see... How dare you? You didn't even see John Goodman fight a ninja. You cheated yourself. You cheated yourself. That's absolutely not fair. How dare you say this movie's bad? Having not... How deep into the movie does that happen? I don't know, maybe like an hour 20. 
Oh, yeah. Well, that would have been double the time I gave it. You, my friend, just don't... Oh, my goodness. You don't play ball, sir. Dirty pool. And let me say, Andrew, my stop finger on the remote twitched in the first ten minutes, but I said, no, I gotta give this movie a chance. I told Andrew I would. I will keep watching. And I made it to the 42-minute mark because I said, well, this is about the length of an hour-long TV show. I feel like I've tried. (laughs) You went far enough, Frank. You can YouTube the clip of John Goodman fighting a ninja. Hysterical. And it's great. Was it awesome, John? (laughs) I can't trust Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) You know how old movies are bad, which makes them good? Yeah. There you go. That's John Goodman fighting a ninja. (laughs) (laughs) He spins him around like a helicopter, dude. (laughs) He picks him up over his head and then starts spitting him. It's campy, but the fear is it's not meant to be campy. You can't tell me that they got John Goodman kind of at like the... And this is going to sound very mean, but almost at the peak of his obesity. (laughs) 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 You can't tell me that like... I'm having a bit of a disconnect here because I can't understand how you can't like listen to what I'm telling you, Frank, and still tell me that like... This is supposed to be deadpan serious on the same level as the 13th Warrior. And I think that's the reason that we're going to go back to anger. And I don't think it's this masterpiece of the Wachowskis. I don't think it's the best movie that they did. But this movie is a nudge, nudge, wink, wink type of film. At least for me, like it's based on an obscenely campy cartoon. They took that ball and they ran with it. And I have to give them props. It feels like you expected this to be way too serious. No, I definitely didn't expect this to be serious, just from what I know of the film's history and the IP involved. But I was hoping to see a stronger, cohesive tone. Parts of it, even in the first 40 minutes, some of it feels like it's going for seriousness and drama but in a wacky world with a little boy and a monkey is kind of hard to accept. If I recall, the marketing campaign was trying to pass it off as a visual spectacular. We talked about it earlier with Conan the Destroyer, the computer graphics age so much worse than like a man in a suit. Because this movie wasn't going for hyper-realistic effects, I don't want to say it gives it a pass, I think the art design and the art style of the movie gets the job done to where I think it still looks, it looks very cartoony, but it's based on a cartoon and they were going for it hard. Even some of the Marvel movies from the earlier years or even ones that come out now, like the CG just doesn't look too good because they're trying to make everything look super realistic. And with this one, they're not even giving it a try. I mean, it's... It's a cartoon in a live-action world. I have to give it some credit. As bonkers as the movie is, I appreciate that they went for something unique. And I've got a feeling it was their vision for the film. It's hard to believe that the studio gave them notes telling them to make that particular film. Movies like this, as much as I dislike it, You and others, there's that niche that are going to love it even more because it is so unique that it happens to fall within their 
filmic range. So I'm happy that it exists. I can't think of many movies that are on the same level with its uniqueness and budget. So yeah, that's what I'll say about that. Well, this is an interesting side of you, Andrew. Usually you're very neutral on films. This one, you really fight for it, almost like you're the president of the Wachowski fan club. So I like that bigger in you. <laughs> we need to find more movies like this that I can hate that you love, and we can uh, spar over them. The <laughs> thing is, I feel like I'm fighting for this movie a little too hard, because it's really not one of my favorites. I remember when I saw it in the movies, I had a lot of fun watching it. I really liked the Christmas light diarrhea, as you put it. It was just this, <laughs> whereas you would call it that, I would call it candy-coated. It looks like just an explosion of M&Ms. Since you did see it at a theater, did you get any vertigo from seeing it on such a large screen? No, not at all. Because I feel like I remember hearing that at the time, that some people got sick watching it. I could imagine people having some photosensitive seizures watching this. I will say that for both of our listeners, if you have photosensitive seizures, don't watch this. For your own safety, there's a lot going on. Andrew, going back a second, what about Speed Racer? Because it feels like that was the impetus for this whole episode. Uh, what made you think about it? Honestly, it's just been a while since I watched it, and I wanted to watch it again. <laughs> and I thought, like, you know what? Why not? I'll see if Frank's game. And apparently uh, you weren't. You didn't finish it, because you're a quitter. But that's okay. I am a quitter, and I'll admit I really had nothing better to do with my time. But somehow that still seemed like quite a strain on my schedule. <laughs> Did you just sit in silence for like an hour and a half after turning it off? <laughs> just like, well, my schedule is free now. Staring at himself through the blank screen. We'll never see it again. You said it was uh, perhaps ahead of its time. I agree with you. It should be released a thousand years from now when <laughs> humanity is completely gone and there's nobody to watch it. <laughs> Christ almighty. One theater in the middle of a desert will play it. And the remnants of whatever lions evolved into will still hate it. All right, Frank, I have a question for you then. <laughs> okay, go for it, Andrew. If you were to be sat down, eyes pried open, clockwork orange style, would you rather finish this or City of God? City of God. Absolutely. Because that one was just more of a a genre issue, but it wouldn't have hurt my eyes the way this one did. I'm serious. I do have a touch of motion sickness. I'm really glad I didn't watch this at a theater. It would have killed me. <laughs> Next, I would like to go on to a segment that I am now calling Hollywood Blender, where we will take these three films and find a way to mash them together into some new beautiful experiment. John, let's start with you. It's going to be called The 13th Racer. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Antonio Banderas is inscripted into Conan the Destroyer's race team. And they have to <laughs> take down corporations that are rigging the World Race League. Conan is absolutely the driver. And Antonio Banderas 
is the super sneaky mechanic that keeps sneaking into the trunk instead of the kid and fixing the car mid-race. Nice. Andrew, yours? I would do essentially a remake of Conan the Destroyer in the style of Speed Racer. (laughs) (laughs) There would be even less sense of realism. It would be much more comic booky, and for the 13th Warrior aspect, hmm, what would I add from the 13th Warrior? Have everything in Norwegian. There you go, yeah, just the setting. (laughs) It's set in Norway. Well, for mine, I wrote up a little something. Arnold's rakish racer, Conan, is tasked by Mayor Princess Jenna, played by Christina Ricci, to escort the Muslim poet Ahmed on a quest to find an encrypted thumb drive with an antivirus program powerful enough to end the scourge of the cyborg, trench coat, and sunglasses wearing gang known as the Eaters of the Dead (laughs) that threatens the virtual city of New Tokyo in the year 2092 and a half. Can Conan and Ahmad run the software in time? Or will the evil techno gang cause both Conan's Mach 3000 race car and New Tokyo to crash forever? Beautiful. Find out this summer in Conan the Speed Racer, directed by Lana Wachowski. I think John Goodman needs to be in all three of these movies. I think in mine, he would be Conan's father, the -the over-the-hill fat Conan. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Senior. Conan Senior. (laughs) I really like the idea of just everyone calling him Conan Senior. (laughs) Now for TLDL, Too Long Didn't Listen, that segment for listeners that just want to get down to the nitty gritty of what we thought of these films. I'm going to ask you guys some questions, and I just want one word answers. John, out of the three, is 13th Warrior still the best for your money? Yes. Andrew, what demographic will like Speed Racer more? Anime fans, film scholars, or pre-adolescents? Anime. John, is 13th Warrior more action, drama, fantasy, horror, or comedy? Drama. Andrew, what network should Speed Racer be in rotation on? MTV, Sci-Fi, or Siffy? Cartoon Network, or Comedy Central? Cartoon Network. And lastly, Andrew, I added this one just now because I'm very curious. On a scale of 1 to 10, 5 being neutral, where does Speed Racer land for you? Solid eight. Oh my god. Oh, that's disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everybody's entitled to their opinion. (laughs) Wrong as it may be. I'm going to abstain from this, but John, what number would you give it? I'm going with a four. I'd normally give it a five, but I'm going to add a little spite to this. (laughs) (laughs) Just because I like it, you're going to be like, never mind, this movie sucks harder. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Well, it says something that this movie has found a way to get that vitriol up in him so badly he had to do that to you. (laughs) (laughs) 
it was your review of 13th Warrior, really, that brought down Speed Racer 1. Uh, whatever. You know, pick a more exciting movie next time. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I picked the exciting movie last time. You did, you did. <laughs> I guess Revenge for <laughs> City of God. Man, look at this. I thought I brought us together for something noble, and instead we're tearing each other apart. We have driven a wedge between ourselves. I'm never picking movies for this podcast again. <laughs> go speed racer, go speed racer, go!